Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Today's show comes to you partially from Abu Dhabi. Uh, I'm here because there's been a huge conference sponsored by the United Nations on uh, how we're going to move from fossil fuels into renewable energy, a critically important source. And my guest today knows a lot about this. Her name is Paula Glover, and she is the president in Washington of the Alliance to Save Energy. Paula, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me a little bit about the Alliance to Save Energy. Some years ago, I was invited to talk to your group, and I enjoyed that very much, but that was before you came on board. Sure. So the Alliance, we are a little bit over than 45 years old. We are a nonprofit here based in Washington, D.C. We call ourselves and we are a bipartisan coalition of government industry leaders, community advocates, environmental leaders, when we have a focus on energy efficiency and federal advocacy around energy efficiency. We believe that using less is always more important and better than using something that is clean. Um, and we believe that efficiency is really foundational um, to our transition to a clean energy economy. Um, that's great. And uh, how do you go about this? How do you go about promoting energy efficiency? Are we supposed to say to our kids, put the lights off, or is it a little bit more profound than that, I hope? It, it is pro more profound, but I actually, I think you start with telling your children to, to put the lights off, to put on a sweater as opposed to turning on the heat, to, you know, all of those things that we would describe as conservation, um, not to run the shower for 10 minutes and run hot water longer than you need to, all those things. And so for us at the Alliance, we talk about efficiency, which is how do you get the most out of every molecule, every atom, every therm that you use. And we also talk about conservation, which is how do we save energy and the energy that we're using. And at the same time, we want people to be comfortable um, and so we believe that with efficiency, you can maintain your comfort, but at the same time, use less energy. Now, when the alliance started, of course, the issue wasn't pollution. The issue was shortage of energy. And we were prepared to burn anything that burned. Now we're a little concerned about burning things. But maybe before we get into that, you'll tell us how you came into the energy business and uh, how you got to where you are today. Sure. You know, I came into the energy business. It was my first job out of college, and I was taking payments from customers who were coming into um, the local gas company in my small town um, and making their payments. And I had the opportunity from that role to move into other roles. But what I think is most important and certainly indicative about who I am as a person is I always describe that job as the most important job that I've ever had, um, because being able to talk with customers, having customers come in, and unfortunately, sometimes you see customers in one of some of their most worst states, customers who've had their service turned off, may not have the money to turn their service back on, customers who are ill, lots of things that are going on customers who may have lost employment and it makes it difficult for them to pay their bill. Um, and so being able to have that role and being able to interact with customers has been very meaningful for me and has basically defined, I think, my interest in this field. Whereabouts was that first job? In Connecticut, in a small town called Bethel, Connecticut. And you've been, you, you most of your career was in 
utilities in Absolutely. Connecticut. I spent 15 years working in utilities in Connecticut, gas and electric utilities in Connecticut. Um, and then I've been in Washington now um, for about 12 years working in two different nonprofits. The first was called the American Association of Blacks and Energy, and now I work for the Alliance. But most of my career, if not all of it, I've spent in energy. Um, if we uh, change, as we change the uh, the focus of the mm -hmm. alliance from there's not enough energy to we're burning too much coal and too much natural gas and we need to reduce those because they are very large contributors to global warming. Uh, there's no doubt about global warming, I would think, these days when you see the incredible things the weather has been doing around the world. Yes. Um, so that we accept that we can see the 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 ice is melting and both poles a very disturbing time now if you stay with the alliance to save energy if you save you uh, you don't burn anything so saving is an efficiency are obviously a very key part of this uh, but what do you feel about the the transition as we move from those old fuels to the new fuels. Yeah, I think, you know, you've identified and we have multiple issues. Climate change and global warming is one of them. I mean, a big one that we need to deal with as it relates to energy. But we have some other additional issues that I believe energy efficiency can also help to effectuate. One would be energy insecurity and energy poverty, as well as energy burden. And so these are all terms that describe either customers who spend a large proportion of their daily income, their monthly income on energy costs, or customers who choose to not turn on their heat when they're cold or their air when they're warm, when they really need it as a way to not to spend less. We call that energy poverty because it's not that they don't have access, but they don't use it when they can because it's too expensive. And then we have customers um, that we would describe as energy insecure. And those are customers who see shutoff notices from their light bill or their gas bill at least once a month. Um, and once a year, but many times customers will get those kinds of notices over and over again. And efficiency really creates an opportunity for us to do a lot of things. The first, as you said, is right not using anything. So anytime you can allow people to get what they need, to have the comfort in their home, to and not have to spend as much because they're using less energy. That could be because they have um, high efficient appliances, washing machines, dishwashers. It can be because they've changed out their light bulbs and they have LED light bulbs, right? And those are highly efficient. It can be because of um, the other kinds of appliances that they use or that they keep their heat, even when it's a very cold day, they kind of keep their heat at that 70 degree mark. People who may turn down their water heater um, from 140 degrees to maybe 120 degrees, right? All of these are different things that we can do in our homes um, and in our businesses to save fuel and save energy while maintaining our comfort. Um, Some of this, Paula, comes under what is called uh, energy um... Uh, if equity, energy equity and justice, I think is the full uh, yes. title. And yep. that obviously is of concern to you because you mentioned earlier that you were uh, involved with the uh, Association of African Americans. Is it called the African Americans in Energy? It sure is. American Association of Blacks in Energy. That's right. Blacks in Energy. Yep. Okay. Well, and I beg your pardon, I should no, remember. No, it's fine. You told me just a few moments ago. <laughs> um, 
what is its mission and how does that fit in with a social justice and energy? Sure. So the so aid, the association's mission was really to be the voice of African Americans in energy policy. And that's really because the founders of the organization 40 plus years ago really knew back then that various communities have different relationships with the our energy system. And as I described, energy burden or energy poverty, we can see demographically that there are certain communities, black and brown communities, who tend to pay more irrespective of their income um, income on energy. And so Abe's job was really to be the voice of those communities so that the policies that we enact would not disproportionately harm one community versus the other. As we talk about a transition in energy justice, what we're also talking about is not just policies that make sure that every community has access to the energy system, every community has clean energy, that's what we're moving that, that, that we're moving towards, but that also they all communities get the economic benefit. And so that starts talking about who has jobs to work at our utility companies, our clean energy companies, energy efficiency, what have you. We're also talking about um, who owns the business and what kinds of small businesses can grow from this new energy transition. And so energy justice is really this idea that communities should be able to benefit fully from this transition economically, as well as environmentally. Um, and so we care about that deeply at the Alliance, but also you know, the Association Abe cares about that deeply as well. This business of cutting off customers for non-payment, this is a very delicate- Absolutely. Uh, but I want to tell you on a lighter note that I had my electricity cut off when I was living in Washington on Connecticut Avenue in a very nice apartment building. And I was invited to a big electric conference by the president of the local utility. It was then called Pepco. I don't know what they call it now. Uh, and he treated me grandly. They sent a limousine and all that. When I got back to the apartment, there was no electricity. So I called up the the the, the the super and I said I've got no appall. Uh, he said, "Well, you haven't paid the bill, probably." I said, "No, no, I know the president of the utility," and he said, "Sure, you do. You haven't <laughs> paid, have you?" <laughs> um, I, I can tell you because I grew up in Africa that nothing is worse than being without electricity. It is just such drudgery when you and my father often. Uh, was working far from electricity, uh, any supply at all, in, in very um, primitive rural areas. He installed uh, diesel and plant to crush grain, and uh, we would go with him. And if you have to make a fire to heat the water, to bathe, you don't bathe as often. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have to make a fire to heat the water, to make a cup of tea, you may do without as many cups of tea. In fact, it's awful drudgery. And you can't read your book at night because there's not enough light. Hurricane lanterns and and uh, candles don't cut it. So, uh, and people are very uh, live very difficult lives. There are 800 million people I heard at this conference, which is being run by part of the United Nations, um, on transition, on the move to renewables. But they say there's still 800 million people in the world that have no electricity. When I first started writing about utilities, which was 50 years ago, you didn't see any African-Americans in these meetings, or very few. 
Now there are a lot. So um, there's been a huge change in the employment statistics in the utility industry. Uh, do you think that's partly because of your efforts or is this just a large change in our society? I think it's both of those things. I think it's a little bit of my efforts, but I also think that there's a much larger sea change that's been going on and has been going on probably for a couple of de decades as it relates to greater representation of African-Americans and others in utility companies. And so we're starting to see, as you've noted, much larger numbers just these last several weeks, right? Two of our largest utility companies are now being led by African-American med men. That's a first. We haven't- Which, are, which two are those? So, Chris Womack has been named CEO of Southern Company, um, and Calvin Butler, prior to him, several weeks ago, was named CEO of Exelon. Um, so that's the very largest, the very largest. Absolutely. So that's a that's a very significant shift. So all of this, I think, is really encouraging. Um, but I want to say something to something that you talked about living in Africa and what it means for people who don't have access to electricity, um, because I don't necessarily know that as Americans, we fully appreciate all that having access to electricity provides us, right? So you've talked about, right, being able to bathe and heat your water. But what we know is that in those places where people don't have access to utility, um, electricity, that means that kids typically stop going to school by fourth or fifth grade because they've got to collect wood or whatever to heat the home to be able to cook. If you don't have access to electricity, you would likely have no access to refrigeration. Then we can talk about what does that mean for your medical care? access to medicines and all the other things. And so um, it's such a big deal to have access to electricity, but that means that this transition becomes even more delicate and important because we wanna make it a clean transition. And obviously it'd be easier just to burn fossils and get us there a lot faster. So I think we just have to be more diligent about it and do it the right way. The conference that has just concluded here in Abu Dhabi and which I've been uh, fascinated by is to do with what they call the transition. And it's very significant. It is how do we get into renewable energy, which they define as primarily, but not exclusively, wind, solar, a little bit of geothermal, which is natural heat in the ground. Um, there's talk about the, using the oceans, wave power, but very, very little. Um, but primarily, it's wind and solar, and uh, this is the direction it's going. I would add to that, because I think it's just as green or more green, possibly, nuclear power. But that's not for everywhere, and it takes a long time to install, because there are all sorts of barriers. You don't just go up and buy a nuclear plant and put it up. It takes a while. You don't just buy a farm and put windmills up, but it's much faster. How do you personally feel, having watched what has happened, this transition? And the transition, as you know, is very difficult in this country because we depend on natural gas for an awful lot of our electricity. I think 37% and even coal is at 19%. So it's a big change at a time we're asking for more electricity for electric cars, electric everything. Yeah, I How think- yeah, I mean, our demand for electricity continues, our energy continues to go up, right? We want cars, we have more stuff, my phone, my, you know, all these things that need power. And so the transition, we have to be smart about it. But I would also say that it's really important that 
um, and why I'm pleased that this administration is focused on energy justice, because without that focus, what we know will happen is that there will be communities who are left behind because they're just not top of mind, because they've got other issues and this may not be one of the things that that particular community is focused on. And so, you know, we wanna make sure that the transition that we make includes everybody. But I also firmly believe that efficiency has to be a part of that conversation, that we shouldn't just be talking about opportunities for solar and wind, as you pointed out, nuclear, which I think is gonna be really critical for a transition, we are still gonna be relying on some natural gas. We, we know that that's gonna happen. But our ability to really reduce greenhouse gases and do this in the way that we've described, I think requires that we focus on efficiency as well. That means that we wanna make sure we have technologies in our buildings that may allow our appliances to shape, shed load, add load, we want to make sure that our, our building envelopes are as efficient as possible. They have the right kind of insulation that they needed. Um, we want to make sure that those homes that have to be retrofit, um, particularly in those impoverished communities, that we take care of that. We don't just skip over that because we're trying to get this to this transition. And so efficiency really, as we know, demand is going to increase. Prices are likely to go up in terms of the price per electron will go up as we make the transition, but we can keep costs down if we focus on efficiency. If we make those kinds of investments now, as we're building out or as we're moving over, I think we will see in the long run, not just a reduction in our greenhouse gases, but we will also see the reduction in costs that we wanna see and, and ensure that our energy is affordable. But the efficiency I think is the key for us to do that. And that means that's a different type of investment. What do you think are the drivers towards clean energy? Uh, some people would like to see a carbon tax. Some countries use a carbon tax. Um, this is not the case in the U.S. because taxes are a very delicate issue and mm -hmm. you will not get a new tax through Congress, particularly the Congress that we have now with such division in it. Um, what do you see the drivers that are going to make this work? Earlier today, I was talking to the uh, Secretary General of the uh, of this agency, uh, this uh, uh, United Nations agency, and he thought that that there could be a fairly natural progression that people would reach for green and gradually there would be a change. It seems to me that you need something more aggressive than that to bring it about. Yeah, I think the, so I would suggest that the president's um, Inflation Reduction Act is one big step towards moving us very quickly and aggressively towards this future. There are lots of things in that bill and investments that are made in efficiency, um, tax credits and others that really highlight the need for us to invest in um, CCS and make sure, you know, do some research around CCS, do some research around CCS. Um, carbon capture sequestration. Um, and so all it's, these- It's when we, we're using coal or we're using natural gas. Gas and capture that carbon. The bad stuff out of it. Yeah. before it's burned or immediately after it's been burned yes. so that it never gets into the atmosphere. Absolutely. And so I think, you know, the investments in not just the research and the technologies that we have today, but thinking about what can we do for the future, I think that's important. The fact that those investments are being made now um, is really important for this transition. But equally as important, I think, as you've noted, is that we have a sense of urgency that we need to address these challenges pretty quickly, 2030, 2035, 2040, depending on which calendar that you're looking at. 
Um, and yet we want to do this with an eye towards equity and justice. And that suggests that we already know that we have, that everybody is not the same. Every community is not the same. Um, the grid is not the same everywhere. Um, and so if we're going to look at it equitably, then we need to think about what investments need to be made where and, and why do we need to make those investments in particular localities. Um, but be really, I think, deliberate about those communities that we know are the worst off. One of the things that I always think about is in terms of the public policy realm is that if we get good policy right for the least of us, everyone else will be okay. Um, but what tends to happen is that getting policy right for the least of us is the hardest thing to do. And so we move on to something that's a little bit easier. We have a, a, a junction here, if you will, yes. where policy is important, but you really have to have economic stimulus. Um, yes. At this conference, uh, uh, John Kerry, the special envoy to the president, to, to President Biden, made a, a strong case for the private sector, but the private sector needs incentive yeah. in business opportunity. Uh, policy does not necessarily provide business opportunity. Uh, I think that if you were to put in a, a gas tax, uh, a carbon tax on everything, including gasoline, that would provide a lot of opportunities, a lot of innovation, but we're not doing it. We're gonna have to do it some other way. What incentives do you see for the private sector to move faster in both energy equity and in the transition from polluting fuels to non-polluting fuels? So I would say the, the biggest incentive that the administration has issued around the transition in terms of energy equity is the Justice 40 initiative. Um, that 40% of all these federal dollars has to go to the benefit of specific Justice 40 communities, those communities that have been impacted by pollution. And so that sends a real signal um, to industry and other private actors that this is a priority um, because that's how they're gonna be spending their money. Um, in addition, community benefit agreements is another signal, I think, a way to incentivize um, right, private industry to behave and do things in a way that you want by sending them signals that a community benefit agreement is one of the things that they're gonna need from anybody who wants to engage with the department and get kind of grant dollars for this energy transition. How, do these, how are these, uh, uh, I don't want to say at risk communities, but mm -hmm. disadvantaged communities, how are they identified? Who identifies them? So as I understand it, and I, I don't want to be super specific, but I know at one point the administration kind of came back with um, a tool that would allow you to understand what does an environmental justice community look like? What are the markers that you need to be paying attention to? I believe the EPA also has a tool that does that. Um, but the administration is being very deliberate about directing people to and being descriptive about the communities um, that they want people to pay attention to and how money is going to be spent in specific communities. The other things, though, that have been done are tax incentives. Tax incentives are a great way to incentivize people to do things. And so um, in, in, uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act, we have some tax incentives for efficiency that allow manufacturers as well as homeowners that we want them to adopt efficiency. There's also tax credit um, that people can go after if they're going to develop a carbon capture 
project, right? There's a 45Q tax credit. Um, other incentives are money that have gone to the DOE loan office to invest in carbon capture or hydrogen projects. So there are lots of other ways that we can incentivize behavior here that's not just changing a regulation, but send signals um, right to private industry um, of where we're going and, and how we want them to participate. I would suggest that the rub that policy always has is consistency and making sure that industry, you wanna give them a signal that this is your priority, but people wanna know that this is something that we're gonna be doing for the long-term and not a one-off, right? Businesses need to have some kind of assuredness um, when they're making investments. And so I think that what the administration is doing is trying to demonstrate that this is where we want people to invest dollars because this is where the government's going to be investing their dollars. Paul, I want to go back to something you said earlier or to some confusion in my mind. Okay. Most of these communities where social, where justice and where equity is required are urban, I would imagine. Not all of them, but most of them whereas all of the new generation technologies tend to require land, windmills, uh, solar, so, so you're not going to be able to put those into urban communities. You can't go to the ghetto and put them up because that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, so how do they benefit from the, green, from the greening of the electric system? So for urban communities, it may not be a solar farm right there, but certainly you can invent, incentivize community solar or rooftop solar. You see that in DC, Chicago, um, Atlanta, so different areas of the country now where they're building community solar um, in one location, one big rooftop where everybody in the community can benefit from that. They may get a lower rate if they buy solar from the, the solar from the church's roof, for example, as opposed to the company. So there are things that you can do in urban environments. But also, I think the idea around justice does not just mean urban environments. It also means very rural environments. Right. So if you think about rural Appalachia, West Virginia, Kentucky, like those areas also, right, where you have populations that I would describe are poor people who have been impacted by climate, right? Um, in any kind of way, or pollution would qualify. And so part of I think we have to be careful about is making sure that when we think about communities that are harmed, we don't just think just urban, but that we also think rural because if we want this transition to happen and to include everybody and we also need to recognize that politics and politicians do play a part then we need to make 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 sure that we are articulating communities in such a way that is relatable to everyone and just about every member likely has a community that needs help in some kind of way. They're not all going to be environmentally harmed. They're not all going to be justice 40 communities, but and they're not, but they're but they are, but there are communities that may be impoverished that have a problem. And so this transition, we want to ensure that it includes them as well. And so it can be building big things. But again, I think efficiency is the way that you get there. Paula Glover, president of the Alliance to Save Energy. Thank you for your enlightening remarks and being my guest on White House Chronicle. Until next time, that's our show. Come back, please, Paula, and have a great weekend. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.